The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised. Twenty-seven-year-old Sasha Kraus had her whole life ahead of her. She'd already made her parents incredibly proud of the young woman she'd become, and they were eager to see how her life would unfold after moving away from home. And although Sasha was living in an entirely different state, her parents felt their daughter was safe, living in a peaceful community of Mennonites. There was no way Sasha's family, the community she was living in, or for Sasha herself to know, a predator was on the lookout for someone just like her. A young woman full of promise with so much to live for. Join me now as we take a look into the disappearance of Sasha Krause, a young Mennonite woman living a faithful life in New Mexico. You'll discover how innocence and virtue was targeted by resentment and obsession and how modern technology uncovered the trail of a man determined to inflict tragedy. On the eastern edge of New Mexico's Navajo Nation lies the city of Farmington, a city formerly known as Farmingtown, with a population today of just less than 50,000. Situated at the confluence of two prominent rivers, the San Juan and the Animas, the location, terrain, and semi-arid climate make this area a veritable outdoor playground. If it's time on the water where you'd like an adventure, you'll find whitewater rafting, kayaking, and fly fishing. If you'd rather keep your feet on the land, there's mountain biking, endurance racing, and in each August, the city plays host to the Connie Mac World Series, considered the most prestigious amateur baseball championship in the United States. But for a small group of devout members of the Mennonite faith, it wasn't the outdoor recreation that brought them to Farmington. It was a community. About eight miles to the city's east, tucked into a scrubby desert bowl off Country Road 350, an enclave Mennonite community ran a small church with a congregation around 150 members. They also operated a publishing house called Lamp and Light, a rather fitting name for a Christian publisher taken from Psalms 119. The location itself is remote, with only a few dozen buildings scattered among the rocky landscape to house the publishing staff and the rest of the community members. On the butte, overlooking the small community, the words lamp and light are written in large hillside letters, typical of many western towns, proudly announcing their presence to passerbys. The closest comparison to a Mennonite community would be the Amish community, with the central tenets of their theology nearly identical. The main visible difference is, most Mennonites, 
don't go to quite the extremes when it comes to separating their communities from mainstream society. You'll see Mennonites driving cars instead of horses and buggies, using phones and electricity, but still dressing extremely modestly, with women wearing traditional head coverings. In 2018, 26-year-old Sasha Krause moved from her home in Texas to join the Farmington Mennonite community, where she became a member and live-in volunteer with the Lamplight Publishers. At 11 years old, Sasha's family became Anabaptists and joined the Mennonite Church in Temple, Texas, a conversion young Sasha embraced and drew inspiration from. As a young girl, she enjoyed writing poetry and hymns with an emerging interest in literature. It was these passions, combined with the close relationship she had with her six siblings, that ultimately set Sasha on the path to becoming a teacher. For six years, Sasha taught in her home state before the opportunity to work at Lamp and Light came up. For the community itself, Sasha was an infusion of the type of young spirit and exuberance cherished in traditional communities with aging populations. Everyone could see how devoted she was, not only to her faith, but to her work and the community she now come to live with. By January 2020, Sasha was 27 and had been living in Farmington for about a year and a half, teaching Sunday school and working at the Lamp and Light Publishers. Sasha was housed on the bottom floor of a home she'd been sharing with three other young women, who were also volunteers. Living upstairs was an elderly couple who served as house parents, providing dinner for the women five days a week. But Sasha wouldn't be living there much longer, because she'd proven to be such a valuable asset to the community. Eventually, she was given the option to move into her own home on the Mennonite property, a nearby trailer allowing her to have some privacy, solitude, and independence. On January 18, 2020, Sasha spent most of the day getting her new home ready to move into. The big project Sasha planned for that day was to assemble a new bed with one of her close friends. But there was also something else Sasha needed to get ready for, a Sunday school lesson she'd be teaching in the morning. To prepare, Sasha needed to borrow a few books from the church's library, but before that, she planned on spending one of the last nights before her move with her roommates for dinner. When they were done eating around 7.30, Sasha hopped into her car and made this short drive to the church library to get the book she needed. The church itself was a relatively short walk away, only a few hundred yards. But because January nights in Farmington regularly dip below freezing, it wasn't unusual for Sasha to drive rather than walk that night. But as the night wore on, one of Sasha's roommates, Lucinda Horst, noticed Sasha still hadn't returned. 10.30 is when we're expected to be in our rooms and quiet. And so... I should have gotten concerned because it was a little bit on the late side, but sometimes if one of us girls goes to a friend's house close by and get to talking, you know, it can get a little late. So I really wasn't worried. I just thought, well, 
As long as I leave this light on and her bedroom lights on, she can see to get through the living room back to her bedroom. And I just went to bed. Just after 1 a.m., Lucinda woke up in the middle of the night to see the light she left on for Sasha still on. Immediately, she knew Sasha hadn't come back to the house and woke up another roommate to go out looking for her. After putting on their winter coats, Sasha's two roommates walked down to the church to see if they could find Sasha. As always, the church was unlocked and the two women stepped inside. But as they turned on the lights and called out Sasha's name, they heard nothing. They even tried calling her cell phone and texting her, but again, there was still no answer. After searching the entire building, even the basement, they still found no sign of Sasha. Perhaps most surprisingly, they found all the books Sasha needed to gather still sitting on the shelves in their original place. Sasha's car was also right there, parked just outside the front of the church. If she wasn't in the church, where was she? Lucinda felt in her gut something was terribly wrong and called another member of the community. Soon, the San Juan County Sheriff's Office was also notified of the disappearance. Looking at the scene, police found Sasha's car unlocked, which was actually completely normal for most vehicles in the community at that time. Nothing seemed amiss, except for one tiny odd discovery. Her car keys were found wedged between the front passenger seat and the door, right in that annoying space that becomes a graveyard for lost coins. Retracing Sasha's steps, it seemed most likely she'd at least made it to the church for the simple fact her car was there. But because the book she meant to pick up appeared untouched, the theory was something must have happened to Sasha between her getting out of her car and walking up to the church building. However, police couldn't find any signs of a struggle. No blood, no torn clothing, no possessions dropped. There wasn't even so much as a scuffle mark on the gravel. It was as if Sasha had simply vanished. For police, it seemed, there were two possibilities. Either she decided to leave on her own, or she'd been abducted. But with the more they learned about Sasha, the less likely it seemed she'd left on her own. They also found Sasha's purse in her bedroom, which obviously indicated she hadn't planned on being away from her house for long. Something must have happened to her, and the most likely scenario was that someone had taken her. The San Juan County Sheriff's Office didn't waste any time and launched a thorough investigation that same day. Detectives gathered all the surveillance footage from the area they could find, but because it was a Mennonite community, it wasn't exactly the most technologically advanced place to begin with. As the area was searched with dogs and aircraft, police interviewed anyone who might have insight as to what may have happened to Sasha that night. A $50,000 reward was offered for any information, along with a description of Sasha and the clothing she was last seen wearing. A long, simple gray dress with a white fleece jacket. The time tasks are delegated out to each person. We're speaking with several people. Um, and then on top of that, we're receiving 
as the investigation in the initial, in, in the initial stages goes on, we're receiving um, several different anonymous tips that we're needing to follow up on. So but in the grand scale, I have approximately eight or 10 people helping me work on this together. Um, and it, it very exhausting. The amount of work that was put into it um, as far as following up on those leads, whether they seem to be minor at the time or major at the time. Despite uncovering a number of possible leads early on, after a month, all detectives were left with were dead ends and eventually absolutely nothing. But as the case went cold, something completely unexpected was about to happen nearly 300 miles away. I live on the road. Um, I don't have a home right now. Um, I've been on the road for about six, six years. You just heard the voice of Cynthia Schultz, a retired teacher from California who taught for nearly 30 years before having to make an extreme lifestyle change. Um, I became overexposed to cell phones and Wi-Fi and routers and antennas and people's devices. And so I was one thing, one, they call it microwave radiation poisoning. So I was, had microwave radiation poisoning and I had to walk away from everything. For Cynthia, getting into healthy areas meant finding remote locations for her to camp. Locations where she'd be as far away as possible for electromagnetic waves like Wi-Fi or even cell service. Basically, Cynthia was looking for technological dead zones and it was something she'd been doing for six years by that point. On the night of February 20th, 2020, Cynthia pitched her camp at Sunset Crater National Monument, about 15 miles north of Flagstaff, Arizona. The crater itself is actually a cone of a volcano that last erupted about a thousand years ago, but is now considered extinct. The next day, while Cynthia was fixing up her new campsite, preparing to settle in for a few days, the unthinkable happened. Um, I had been collecting wood and then I came up around the back of my camp and I saw in the distance something white and um, I collected garbage around there. So first thought was like, oh, I'll come back here. I get some white plastic bag or something. And so I walked closer to see what it was and, um, and then when I got closer, I could tell it was a, a body and, and it was like face down and I could see that there was a green wrapping next to the white part and then I could see the calves of the person and the shoes and the calves. The skin was kind of a, an orangey color, like, and I thought it must have been exposed for a while. The body Cynthia discovered was a young woman wearing a long, plain gray dress and a white fleece jacket. Her hands had been duct taped in front, and it appeared she'd been dead for some time. However, in the cool and dry winter desert climate, the body hadn't undergone significant decomposition. And then I ran through my camp and ran to my truck, got in, and I sped to the visitor center, and I was crying and shaking. And I just 
to the person in the kiosk. It wasn't Neela. I just said, you've got to get someone out there. There's a body out there. You've got to get someone to help. Because of where the body had been found, Agent Lauren Nagel of the Coconeo County Sheriff's Office became lead detective on the case, and after arriving at the scene, found the body just as Cynthia had described. Immediately, the agent took notice of the distinctive clothing worn by the victim, as well as her hair pulled back into a tight bun. Later that night, maybe even early the next morning, we had learned that Sasha Krause had been reported missing. I learned about that case. I had seen a picture of her that was on the missing persons bulletin. So we suspected that it could be Sasha, but it wasn't officially identified to be Sasha until the, the autopsy, which was the following week. Agent Nagel's suspicions were confirmed through an autopsy. Their victim was indeed Sasha Krause. It also provided some extremely valuable information as to how she died, because oddly, just by looking at Sasha, it was difficult to determine what the cause of her death had been because there were no obvious fatal wounds. During the autopsy, it became evident Sasha had suffered severe blunt force trauma to her head. An x-ray would also reveal a bullet lodged in her throat, the result of a single gunshot from a 22 caliber rifle right through her hair bun on the back of her head. A wound that hadn't been obvious because of Sasha's tightly bunched hair concealing the entry wound. Just over a month after she'd vanished into thin air, Sasha had finally been found. But what happened in those last moments of Sasha's life? Who had she encountered? How had her body ended up nearly 300 miles into the Arizona desert? To anyone who knew Sasha, it was truly incomprehensible to imagine anyone wanting to harm Sasha, let alone one or dead. Sasha had no known enemies and had so much to live for. Who could have possibly done this and why? Interestingly, at the crime scene, detectives discovered Sasha's traditional head covering missing, a personal belonging that would never be recovered. They also discovered Sasha hadn't been wearing any underwear when she was found, which obviously made investigators consider a possible sexual motive. But after a thorough examination, there were absolutely no signs of any form of sexual assault whatsoever. Even so, with everything still appearing to be such a complete mystery, the case that had gone completely cold in New Mexico was now getting red hot in Arizona, and Agent Nagel believed she might just have an extremely modern way to formulate a list of suspects. By the time Sasha's body had been found, detectives already knew that on the night of her disappearance, Sasha's cell phone had pinged in two locations. The first location had been in Farmington, where she lived. The second location her phone pinged was a tower 60 miles away in an area of northeastern Arizona known as Four Corners, right along the only highway leading west from Farmington into Arizona. With only two known locations, they had very little to work with. But now that they discovered Sasha's body, they had a third location to work with, Sunset Crater. 
The reason why San Juan County Sheriff's Office hadn't gone that route yet was because up until my involvement, they really only had two locations. They had where Sasha had gone missing from and the area of Four Corners where her phone left the network. So once I became involved, we then had that third location where she had been found. And that's when the idea came up to do what we call tower dumps in those three locations to see if there was any common devices. The idea was simple. They knew Sasha had been in all three locations on the night of her murder. Now they wanted to know who else had been in those same locations at roughly the same time frame. In order to do that, location specialist Sev Dishman was brought on board to help answer that burning question. Do we have on any provider, to be clear, do we have what we refer to as a common device? And what I mean by that is, after I look at all the unique devices around Farmington and all the unique devices around the Four Corners area, and then all the unique devices around north of Flagstaff, when we look at those, how many devices do we have for any provider that were in all three locations? Farmington, Four Corners, Flagstaff. Do we see across any provider a device that we also see in those same locations where we see the victims. There were around 50,000 people in Farmington, thousands more who drove the highway through Four Corners. Sunset Crater was covered by a tower that included the city of Flagstaff with a population of 75,000. The question was, how many of these people had been in all three places on the 18th and 19th of January? And just how long could their list of potential suspects possibly be? On Verizon and T-Mobile, none. And for AT&T, there's only one device that hits all three of those locations and corresponds with those time periods. Only one. That phone belonged to a 20-year-old airman stationed at Luke Air Force Base outside of Phoenix, Mark Gooch. Either Mark Gooch was the unluckiest person in the world, or Agent Nagel had just found their killer. And the more she learned about Mark, the more convinced she became he was the man they were looking for. Because there was a connection between Mark and Sasha that went much deeper than cell towers. So I began looking through the records uh, to include the text message content, and I saw a few things that stood out to me. Uh, a few examples, mention of Mennonites. Again, personally, I had never heard of a Mennonite, so to me that seemed interesting that somebody would be discussing that. And so I saw text message regarding Mennonites. I saw text messages, somebody was asking the user of this phone for their identification, and they sent it to them, which was Mark Gooch. So therefore I thought, well, it seems like it's Mark Gooch that uses this phone number. Um, I saw a text message as another example that said, happy birthday, Mark. So again, leading me to believe it was Mark Gooch. Once Agent Nagel began investigating Mark, she learned he was the youngest of seven children and was originally from Gleason, Wisconsin, where he'd grown up in the Mennonite faith himself. Mark's parents had converted before he was born, but his father, a pharmacist and dairy farmer, always insisted that children were free to make their own choices about following the faith. Although Mark attended church regularly with his family until 2017, 
he never made the decision to convert. From a young age, he began feeling alienated, never feeling truly accepted by the Mennonite community. In his view, it was because his family had been converts to the faith rather than generational followers. To them, he believed, his family would never be considered good enough. These seeds of resentment against the church eventually grew into outright animosity. Feelings also shared by Mark's two older brothers, Sam and Jake, who by that time already left home and began shunning Mennonite values themselves. When Mark was old enough, he too left home and moved in with his big brother Sam. The two brothers spent much of their time indulging in something completely forbidden in their family home, video games. But video games were just the beginning of Mark's rebellion against his Mennonite upbringing. One of the most defining features of the Mennonite faith is their strict adherence to extreme pacifism, much like the Amish and Quakers as well. This means no military service, and often even non-resistance in the face of direct threats of danger. His oldest brother Jake had decided to rebel against that idea by becoming a trooper with the Virginia State Police. And so, in a similar act of defiance, Mark decided to join the Air Force, a step in the direction that would push him further from all the Mennonite values he'd come to despise. After joining the military, Mark arrived at Luke Air Force Base in October 2019. He made friends and generally fit in among his co-workers. But one thing he never talked about with anyone was his religious upbringing. That he kept to himself. Whenever he had time off, Mark took frequent solo trips around the state of Arizona, hiking and camping, and just generally exploring, surveilling his own backyard. At least, that's what he told his fellow airmen he was doing. In reality, Mark had been doing something far more sinister as he traveled around the state. Because it wasn't just his own backyard he was surveilling, it was people. And he was on the lookout for a very specific kind of person. After Agent Nagel obtained search warrants for Mark's cell phone records, an extremely dark picture began to emerge as she read through his text messages. Just one week before Sasha's murder, Mark sent his brother Sam a very interesting message. Even this morning's surveillance was boring. Also from Mark, bunch of old people without much left to live for. Also from Mark, and clearly not the Mennonite people we grew up with. Sad to say, another disappointment. Mark's cell phone showed that on the day he sent the message, he'd driven to two different Mennonite churches in the greater Phoenix area, and in his own words, was surveilling them. Mark would later claim this message was simply in reference to him looking for a new church to help reintroduce him to the faith. However, later messages would demonstrate the deep resentment Mark held toward his old religion that hadn't abated, but had seemingly grown stronger. About three weeks after Sasha's body had been discovered, Mark and his two brothers, Sam and Jake, had a group chat that further solidifies this idea. Agent Nagel reads a message Jake texted to his brothers in that group chat. Just gave a Mennonite a ticket. Only 18 seconds later, Mark replied. Fuck yes. Also from Mark, I hope you treated him like shit. It's from Sam. Haha, ha, hell yeah. 
Tell them the VA state police doesn't like cultists. From Jake, I did, lol. From Mark, haha, fuck yeah. From Jake, I coughed on him so he would spread corona to the wedding they were going to, lol. Haha, that's fucking hilarious. Is it a ticket that he has to appear in court? From Jake, yep, it's reckless. Mark responds, hell yes. Jake says, I told his GF there's freedom outside of Colts, and they look so weirded out. From this conversation, it's difficult to believe Mark had been checking out Mennonite churches with the intent of joining one of them. Mark's feelings toward Mennonite communities seem pretty clear. So why was he investing so much time into watching a community of people he had grown to despise? The conclusion detectives reached was that he was hunting for a victim. But not just any victim. A victim that, in his own words, had something to live for. But why? Had Mark lost his purpose? Or was it his newfound purpose? to inflict the maximum amount of pain against the religion he'd grown to hate. Once detectives honed in on Mark as their primary suspect, the rest of the puzzle pieces fell into place. Records from the Air Force Base confirmed Mark had left the base at 8.30 on the morning of January 18th, the day Sasha disappeared, and that he hadn't returned until the following morning at 7 a.m. Using cell phone location data, they could see that after Mark had left the base, he made the seven-hour drive from Phoenix to Farmington, where he arrived around 4.30 and stayed in the same area for another three hours. He then left Farmington at the exact same time Sasha was believed to have been abducted. What exactly happened to Sasha after her abduction remains a mystery. It's also unknown when or where she was finally murdered, whether in New Mexico, Arizona, or somewhere along the way. What we do know is that after leaving Farmington around 7.45 p.m., Mark and Sasha's cell phones traveled together until Sasha's phone went completely dark, somewhere in the Four Corners area. The drive from Farmington to Sunset Crater takes approximately four hours, and Mark arrived there well after midnight and where he remained for several more hours. Mark's cell signal then actually disappeared completely just before he got to the location where he dumped Sasha's body. Whether or not Mark knew he was in a cellular dead zone at the time isn't known, but in this strange twist of fate, the fact that it was a cellular dead zone is the exact reason why Cynthia Schultz chose to camp there almost exactly one month later, and perhaps the only reason Sasha's body was ever found. Cell phone data showed that Mark took another trip back to Sunset Crater just two days later, a two and a half hour drive from the base, this time only spending about 20 minutes before leaving again. The reason for the second trip remains anyone's guess. Was he getting rid of evidence? Had he moved Sasha's body? Or had he perhaps gone back for a more sinister reason? To take Sasha's head covering and underwear as some kind of twisted trophy? Or had this been the day Mark had actually murdered Sasha? There are still so many unanswered questions. Something else detectives discovered 
Once they began investigating Mark was that on the day after Sasha's body was discovered and the news made it to the headlines all over the state, Mark took his Volkswagen Jetta into a local car wash and spent $220 to have his entire car detailed inside and out. Then Mark purchased a jug of bleach just to give it an extra scrub. But that's not all. He also tried scrubbing his phone's location data history on the 18th and 19th of January, as well as the data from his extra trip to Sunset on the 21st. Unfortunately for Mark, there were just too many other ways for detectives to find out where he'd been, and his failed attempts to cover his tracks only helped solidify the case against him. By mid-April 2020, Agent Nagel knew she had everything she needed to arrest Mark for murder, and so she went to Luke Air Force Base to interrogate him. During the interrogation, Mark played it cool, pretending to have no idea why he was being questioned. Even when she brought up Sasha's name, he showed no outward signs of nervousness or emotion. At first, Mark had simple answers for all of Nagel's questions, but like all great interrogators, she allowed Mark to speak and speak, spinning yarns and telling stories she knew were lies and could be proven to be lies. However, she continued to let him talk, giving him enough rope to hang himself. After letting Mark dig himself deeper and deeper into a hole, Nagel changed tactics and began confronting him with the facts she already knew. That's when Mark's story began falling apart as he began making up even more lies to cover his initial ones. In one instance, Mark had originally claimed he hadn't left the state of Arizona since he'd arrived six months earlier. But when he was presented with evidence that he had been in New Mexico, he suddenly remembered. According to Mark, he'd driven up to Flagstaff to go to a ski resort. But when he got there, the resort was closed because of the COVID-19 outbreak. So with some extra time on his hands, Mark claimed he decided to swing by Farmington Mennonite Church, an additional eight-hour round trip, to see if it might be a community that interested him. There was just one problem with his lie. On January 18th, there was no COVID outbreak, not in the United States anyways. In fact, it wasn't until three days later that the first positive U.S. case was even discovered. Toward the end of the interrogation, Nagel told Mark that other detectives were already speaking to his older brother Sam, and for the first time, Mark's demeanor changed and he became angry, demanding a lawyer and ending the interrogation. But it didn't matter by that point. Nagel had intended on arresting Mark regardless of how he answered her questions. So when he got up to leave, Mark was placed into handcuffs. After Mark's arrest, two more things would happen that would seal the deal on Mark's fate. First, police received a call from one of Mark's co-workers stating Mark had asked him to store a gun for him in his personal gun safe after Sasha's murder. A 22 caliber Marlin rifle, the same caliber used in Sasha's murder. Police suspected this gun was the murder weapon which wasn't surprising, but nothing compared to what happened next. Police then intercepted a message between Mark and his brother Sam shortly after his arrest, 
asking Sam to fly down to Wisconsin to get rid of the 22 for him. So detectives decided to plan a mini sting operation to catch the brothers in the act of trying to dispose of the weapon. Mark's co-worker allowed police to take the real gun out of his safe and replace it with a replica, setting a trap for Sam. And sure enough, after Sam made the trip from Wisconsin and took the gun, police arrested him and charged him with tampering with evidence. Ballistic testing would later confirm the gun Mark had asked to be stashed had in fact been the gun used to murder Sasha. In September 2021, Mark Gooch was put on trial for Sasha's murder. And although almost all of the evidence presented was entirely circumstantial, sometimes circumstantial evidence can be entirely overwhelming. Like the fact, Mark's phone had been the only phone in the world to be in all the exact same place as Sasha had been the night she was abducted and murdered, which the prosecutor laid out for the jury in his opening statements. Now, because the defendant did these things under cover of darkness in some of the more remote areas of the country, there were no eyewitnesses to this. But you'll hear evidence in this case that will tell you where the defendant was and what he was doing on the night of Sasha's kidnapping and murder. For instance, you'll hear about cell phone location data. Well, the police knew Sasha's cell phone number and they obtained the records from the cell phone towers between Farmington and Flagstaff. And they saw that her cell phone was hitting off towers around 7.30 p.m. going to the west until it eventually stopped connecting altogether. So what they were looking for was any other number or numbers that would have hit off those same towers at the same time going the same direction. They combed through pages and pages of these documents from these cell towers and they only found one number that fit that description, the defendant's cell phone numbers. And for that reason, you'll hear that the defendant was in Farmington, New Mexico up until the point of Sasha's disappearance. You'll hear that he was in the Sunset Crater National Monument area after midnight on January the 19th for around two hours, same area where Sasha's body was later recovered. And just in case anyone in the jury might be considering the cell phone evidence to be one giant coincidence, the prosecution pointed toward Mark's actions after the murder to prove their case. The defendant was also monitoring the news about Sasha's disappearance. When the police obtained his cell phone, they found some websites he had visited, and a couple of them were the Facebook pages for the San Juan County Sheriff's Office and the Farmington City Police in reference to Sasha's disappearance. Now, after the sheriff's office here, the Coconino County Sheriff's Office, found Sasha's body and identified her, they put out their own press release in February. And the very next day, the defendant contacted a friend and asked this friend to hold some personal items for him. One of those items being a 22 caliber rifle, unbeknownst to the friend. And then the defendant went and got his car professionally detailed to the tune of $220. Ultimately, the circumstantial case against Mark proved to be completely overwhelming. After less than a day of deliberations, the jury returned with their verdict, guilty of kidnapping and first-degree murder. Throughout the entire proceedings, which included days and days of testimony regarding evidence of cell phone data and forensic analysis, it wasn't the scientific or technological aspects of the case that seemed incomprehensible. 
It was the motivation. Why? Why had Mark decided to murder an innocent woman he'd never even met? A sentiment echoed even by the judge during sentencing. I've been a judge for quite some time. And prior to being a judge, I, I also handled criminal cases as an attorney. And I unfortunately have had to um, handle as, a, as an attorney and then preside over as a judge a number of homicide cases. And they're always difficult. But this case, I thought long and hard about it. And I think this case is truly the most senseless case I have ever presided over. I have thought since the defendant was found guilty by the jury, why he would have committed this crime, this horrific abduction and murder of an innocent person that he didn't, I mean, even if he knew the person, it wouldn't be justified. But the fact that he didn't even know her is also so very senseless and really mind-boggling. It's just to wrap your head around what occurred in this case, it just makes no sense why one human being would do this to another human being. The judge then sentenced Mark to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. He was 22 years old at the time. As for Mark's brother Sam, he was given a bit of a sweetheart deal. In exchange for agreeing to testify for the prosecution at Mark's trial, he only received three years probation for tampering with evidence. And Mark's oldest brother Jake, the state trooper from Virginia who bragged about pulling over a Mennonite and then coughing on him to spread COVID, well, when the content of the brother's group chat was made public, he resigned from the Virginia State Police. Perhaps there will never be a way to understand Mark's motive other than to bring darkness against a community that lived in peace and found virtue in a traditional way of living. Sadly, Sasha was exactly the kind of victim Mark stated he'd been looking for, driving all over the state and even out of state to find simply because she had so much to live for. In her impact statement to the courtroom, Sasha's mom reiterated how intelligent, talented, and determined Sasha was to make a bright future for herself. However, even in death, she believes, Sasha had a purpose. Why was she kidnapped and murdered? I will never understand that in this life. But God, in his ultimate wisdom and goodness, allowed the devil's evil plan to proceed. So he, in his goodness, will not allow her efforts to be wasted. God will use her death for his glory, and I am convinced he has eternal purpose for Sasha that we can only guess from here on. Thank you. And now I'd like to introduce the podcast, Deep Dark Secrets. There's a place on the deep web where murderers roam. Are you my next victim? I've wanted to strangle a woman my whole life. I want to watch the light fade from your eyes. I'm going to watch you die slowly. I will track your body.
body can still withstand leave you behind a rock. Are you ready to buy? Follow along each Monday as we expose the dangerous world of death fetish. Visit deepdarksecretspodcast.com to learn more. Follow the Minds of Madness on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To support the show and get access to ad-free episodes, extra content, and Patreon-exclusive episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. To find us on Instagram and Facebook, search The Minds of Madness, and on Twitter using the handle at madnesspod. And also... By checking out our sponsors and using our promo codes, you're also helping support the show. We've got all the links in our episode notes. So until next week, thanks for listening.